All right, kids ages three to pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship with the Welshes. Uh, the rest of you, if you have a Bible, as is our habit, if you take it out and uh, turn to the book of 1 John, it's towards the back of the Bible. You've got Revelation the last book of the Bible. You've got Jude, 3 John, 2 John, and surprisingly, 1 John. So that's, that's where we're at. We're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. As the kids are still heading out, sometimes I like to just kind of draw attention to what is true and what is real, because some of us tend to forget that. If If you're not a Christian here in this room this morning, you realize how weird it is what we've just been doing for the last 20 minutes, right? Yeah, it's been about 30 minutes, actually. You realize how weird that is. The rest of us don't really get it, but we should, because what we're doing in here is completely bizarre. We don't go anywhere in our culture to sing songs with other people. Most of us barely sing in the shower when no one is listening. Better yet, when everyone can hear us. Uh, we, we don't do things like that. We certainly, um, the idea of having people pray and sing and, and read different passages from, uh, like, who, who gathers together for corporate readings of anything anymore, right? Uh, this, is, this is something different. Um, and I, sometimes I just like to draw attention to that so that we can recognize the fact that, uh, you know, church is neither um, normal in our culture today, even in the valley, believe it or not, uh, nor is it something that, our, um, that makes a ton of sense to a lot of folks. Uh, but it is what the scriptures tell us kind of reshapes us and reforms us into the people that God has made us to be. It's not simply an expression of who we are. It's, it's made to form us. And, and, and none of our worship less than what we are about to do. So this morning, as, as you turn to 1 John, whether it's in your Bible or in our, the passages also in your order of worship, um, let me just kind of direct us to where we're going. So we're still at the beginning of our winter-slash-spring series, right? The series that will take us it, is from... Uh, what was it, January 22nd, I think we started, and it'll go until the end of May in, in uh, 1 John. So let me remind us what this letter is about. Many of us here um, struggle with confusion over the fact that there are so many different visions or ideas about what it means to be Christian out in the world. And what I mean by that is not just um, the amount of like traditional differences between like denominations, maybe even Christian theological traditions. I mean like completely disparate visions. Because like today, you have people claiming to be Christians while giving up on everything from uh, 2,000 years of biblical norms on sexuality to, to uh, the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Like, can I be a Christian and not believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus? So those are questions that are out there today. Questions that we all engage with, probably in our workplaces or our schools, or, or just in our neighborhoods, or even just in ourselves. As we watch the latest news article or, or news show or, or read the latest article that always tends to come out, by the way, in just a few weeks, right? We're coming up on Easter in April and every year, like either Newsweek or Time runs some new secret thing they found about Jesus that denies all of it, uh, which is neither new nor secret, frankly. But here's the reality. The same questions were true in John's day, and that is why he's writing this letter. There's a, there seems to be a group of people in um, the city of Ephesus, which is in what is now Turkey, who have uh, part of that, who were part of the church there, but have broken off, claiming to be Christians while believing and doing lots of things that are antithetical to the gospel. And so, three weeks ago, we looked at um, we looked at the fact that John lays out tests of our faith, 
Some of you will remember that. How, how that they center on how we can be honest about our brokenness. Not just that it was there, but that brokenness is here right now. Right? Not just that we were at one time broken, sinful people, but, but now, even as Christians, redeemed, renewed, restored, forgiven, you're still broken people. Um, then last Sunday, uh, Jason Bailey did a great job of showing how true Christianity leads us to, to delight in the one that we delight in, or, or to seek to delight the one that we delight in, uh, as he said. This week, John continues to lay out why these tests are important and where, in fact, Christian assurance is found. So if you have your place in John chapter 2, if you'd stand, that's our habit here, in honor of God's word. I'm going to be reading verses 7 to 14. This is God's word to us, friends. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard, but at the same time it is a new commandment. That I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says that he is in the light and hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he's going, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his namesake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, we need you to open our hearts. Um. Some of us here in this room are in the darkness. The darkness has blinded us. Others of us uh, want to be back in the darkness, if we're honest. That's what our lives show. Others of us, perhaps, are inching towards the darkness because we've been prideful about how much we think we're in the light. (laughs) We need to hear from you. And even as you're confronting us, we need you also to comfort us. The gospel does both. It confronts and comforts. And so we need you to, Lord, do that this morning. By your spirit, would you, would you come and would you speak powerfully your gospel, your word to us. Teach us that we, teach us your ways, that we may walk in the paths of peace. This we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. Have a seat. So I, I think it goes without saying, I shouldn't really even need to say it, but I think especially given the current state of our culture and our nation especially, I think we all realize how polarized our culture is. Uh, I don't honestly know if it's worse today. We always think everything's worse today than it ever was, right? I mean, that's just kind of the way we go. Everything is worse, so much worse than it ever was before. Um, And yet we do realize that if that were the case, and it were always the case, that everything would have ended in a fiery conflagration, you know, millennia ago. But That being the case, I don't know if it's really worse today or whether we just see it more clearly, but it's hard to miss. And I don't know about you, but that really frustrates me. Polarization frustrates me because one of my issues is that I hate being put in a box. I hate being summed up and thrown into a box because of a certain position. Like if I have a position on X, that, oh, that means you're one of these people. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. hate that. Like, can you, can you just get to know me instead of throwing me in a box? And in fact, one of the things I love about this church And if you're new to this church, you'll you'll come to learn about this. 
we have folks within this congregation from various political persuasions, various theological traditions. Like, we're all over the map, and it's beautiful. Because it shows that something can unite people that ideologically diverse at times. But if you're like me and get frustrated at things like polarizations, what you're going to find is that John doesn't seem to play nice with us. He's constantly making dichotomies. He's constantly throwing out polarities. And they are all over the place in this passage. Light, dark, love, and hate. Like, what about just indifference? Can we just do, nope, nope, love, hate. Like, what about twilight? Can I, nope, light, dark. Like, it's one or the other. There's no middle ground. And it's maddening. But at the same time, this passage also tells us that the work of Jesus makes all of this exist together and at the same time. And it all revolves around this idea, this understanding of light. Okay? So we're going to look at this passage in three ways this morning. Um, the, bulletin, or the bulletin has an outline in it, if that's helpful to you. If not, leave it. But we're going to look at a new state. We're going to look at a new test. And then we're going to look at a new comfort. Okay? A new state, a new test, and a new comfort. Let's begin with a new state. Uh, before I get there, though, let me remind you of where we left off last week. The last verse of the passage that Bailey uh, preached on said this. Whoever says he abides in him, that's Jesus, ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, sounds cool, right? I mean, that, that kind of gets things across. Basically, what he's saying is, look, if you say you're in Jesus, that you have faith in Jesus, then your life should reflect his. Those things should happen. Now, some of us here who aren't Christians are already thinking, right, that this is your biggest issue with the church, right? I mean, even Gandhi said, I like your Christ, but not your Christians because they're so unlike your Christ, right? Like the, and we get that. That's one of the biggest knocks on the church is that, man, I, I, I have an image in my mind of what Jesus was like. Now, granted, that image is generally uninformed, if we're being honest, right? I mean, how many of us before we were Christians ever spent time studying the Gospels to know who Jesus is? I digress. But we have this image of who Jesus is, and then we see Christians, you're like, oh, they're not like him. So that's one of our biggest knocks on the church. And so that means we need to be really clear on what this means, because we all have certain ideas. So John tells us, look down at verses 7 to 8. These verses are super confusing, right? Because he says at one time, he says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. And then the very next verse, he's like, but, uh, you know, it is a new commandment, actually. It is a new commandment. So, what is, he, what is he trying to get at? Because this is weird, okay? Let me flesh out what he's talking about. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you grew up in church, you come from a church tradition, and you hear, the, you hear new commandment, that probably sounds familiar to you. Um, and, and, it, and it should, right? Because um, that is something that comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Brandon read it for us this morning. Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give to you. If you're from, a, like if you came from a church background and that was like a liturgical church, and what I mean by liturgical church is like generally smells, bells, high church, robes, all that stuff, then you may be familiar with a, with a particular um, day called Maundy, not Monday, Maundy Thursday, right? Maundy Thursday is, comes from the Latin mandatum, which means commandment. It's the new commandment. It's the day we celebrate Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper and giving this new commandment. Okay? So Jesus is very, like, he, he has given this new commandment in John 13. So what John is saying is that walking as Jesus walked is not a new commandment, but what was heard from the beginning. Now, if you are a Christian here in this place, especially an evangelical Christian, you're thinking along those lines, what you're probably thinking is like, what? Like, 
I thought everything was by grace and not works, but here he's talking about a commandment. What is all this stuff about commandments? But remember what that means. Remember that this is the, this is the test from the last section. He's talking about a person who claims to abide in Jesus. If you claim to abide in Jesus, then John is saying, if you claim to be a Christian, you should walk as Jesus walked. Not to be accepted, but because you already are accepted. Not to win God's love, but because you're already loved by God in Christ. And here he fleshes out Fleshes that out with the reality that what he is talking about and what he will go into detail with in verses 9 to 11 is the same thing that Jesus said in John 13 that Brandon read. Love one another. As I've loved you, love one another. So in one sense, it's not new because Jesus said it. In fact, if we're being really honest, Jesus didn't even make it up because in Leviticus 19, the other passage that Brandon read, said love your neighbors yourself. It kind of sounds a lot like love one another. But it is new because of a new situation. And that's what he fleshes out at the end of verse 8. Look there. He says, It is a new commandment, in fact, that I'm writing to you, which is true in him, that is Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Now stop there. Okay. Let me help with some interpretation really quick. So if, if this helps, great. Okay. What John is saying here is that the newness of the commandment is not in the content Okay, you with me? The newness of the commandment is not in the content. And obviously that's the case. John knows his Bible. We know that from reading his works. Like he knows the Bible. He quotes it all the time. He references it. He echoes it. All that. He knows what Leviticus 19 said. And he was there when Jesus said, love one another. Right? So he gets the, the newness is not in the content. The newness is seen in the situation. The newness is seen because, the, because this commandment is true in Christ and in Christians because the darkness is passing away and the light is already shining. Okay, Let me say that in another way because it's dense. The newness is not the fact of the commandment or its content, but the fact that it is being fulfilled. The fact that it is being fulfilled. The truth of that newness is seen in Jesus... As he loved us, loved us to the last, loved us enough to die for us, and in those who have been united to Jesus by faith in him. And what this points, at, points to is this weird period where darkness is passing away and light has already dawned. And I say weird because, look, if you were Jewish in the first century, you knew exactly what that meant. That was normal to you, but those of us today were not, right? Most of us are neither of those things, at least all of us aren't one of them, and most of us aren't either of them. So let me explain. If you're Jewish in the first century, you believe that the history of the world is divided into two great epics. Two great epics. Again, with the polarities, I know, but, but it's true, so there. Um, anyway, so ever since the garden, humanity has been alienated from God. We, our relationship with him is broken, and our natures have been changed. Like, we've been made for dependence on God, but we betrayed him, and our natures changed such that now by nature, by nature, not by nurture, not by what we do, by our nature, we are alienated from God. We live in independence from him. Uh, the Bible calls that sin. We are all born into that state. Okay, you with me? Now, that doesn't mean we're all axe murderers. Clearly, we're not. It means that we, by nature, don't look to God for our value, for our worth. We don't do things by nature out of love for him. 
to just delight in him and to, so that he gets glory. That's not natural to us anymore. And because of that, because of the fact that we are stuck on ourselves, all sorts of bad things happen. And Jewish people in the first century called that epic this evil age. Okay? It's called this evil age. Now, the other epic, if that's this evil age, the other epic was that period in which God would fulfill his promise. Because right when everything broke, God promised, I'm going to make it better. I will actually come and make things right. I'll deal with your sin, reconcile you to myself, heal what has been broken. And that was called the age to come. So you had this evil age and the age to come. With me? Two distinct epics in the history of the world. What they also understood was how we would move between the two. And it works like this. We're all in the evil age right now. Sin seems to reign. No amount of good uh, rules seem to fix us. And if you're Jewish in the first century, you knew this was the case. If If you've been churched all your life, you know this is the case, right? Because you grew up with good rules and you can't keep them. They knew they needed to be rescued. And so how it would work is that God would finally send his Messiah who would somehow, and they weren't really clear on exactly how, but he would somehow deal with sin, judge evil, vindicate God's people, raise the dead, and bring about a world without sin, pain, or death. Sounds great, right? Awesome. Now here's the thing. It was always understood that those two things would happen, or that these two ages would always be held apart. And that the change between them two, the two would be this drastic inbreaking that would push the evil age away, and now we have... The age to come. But look at what John says. He says, The darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. So here's what he's pointing to. That Jewish expectation uh, was completely correct, except in how it was going to work out. The claim of the New Testament is that Jesus actually is God's Messiah, who did come to deal with all of those things. He came to judge evil. Not in the way that was expected, but in judging it in his own body. He came to vindicate God's people by rising from the dead. He came to reconcile us to God by both removing our sin and living perfectly in our place. And he rose again as the first fruits of the resurrection. But everything hasn't changed exactly as we thought it would. So what we have in this New Testament is this period in which the evil age and the age to come are overlapping They're overlapping. Okay, why does this matter? If you're a Christian, friends, you live in the overlap. Jesus reigns. And you know this. But there's still rebellion, right? And not just out there. There's rebellion in here too, right? And you know it's there. You hate it, but you know it's there. You may not want to be honest about it. You've been made new, But there's also still this sinful nature in you that you struggle with. You're reconciled to God. But you still go through periods, whether it's moments or days or years, of feeling distant from Him and alienated from Him. So that means that any polarities that John gives us have to be passed through this lens. Because he has given this to us for a reason. Things have passed away, and they are passing away, but at the same time, the light is only dawning. It's not fully broken in yet. 
So we have to pass things through that filter, including this new commandment that's now lived out in us. So that brings us to the test, right? Every passage in 1 John, quite frankly, is trying to help us get assurance, certainty, on what it means to be a Christian. Am I or am I not? Is this person or are they not? Like, are, what, what is it that makes a Christian gain surety of our salvation? That's what it's all about. So he, here it comes with love and hate. Look down at verses 9 and 10. It's really easy. You say you're in the light, but you hate your brother. You're not in the light. You're in the darkness. Ouch. Uh, you love your brother. You're in the light. Now, that would be clear, except it isn't. So let me explain a few things, okay? First, uh, what, we, what, what Brandon read for us this morning, okay? The, the Leviticus 19, John 13. That those commandments to love extend beyond the church. And I need to say that really clearly. They extend beyond the church. To love your neighbor, Jesus tells us, because of course, as soon as we hear like, love your neighbor as yourself, every one of us, if we're being honest, go, well, who's my neighbor? Right? Like, that sounds great. Yeah, but uh, who's, so who's my neighbor? Who can I get away with not loving? Right? And so Jesus actually answered that question uh, by telling a parable called the parable of the Good Samaritan. And his, his answer was, your neighbor is anyone who's in need. Anyone who's in need. Basically anybody. Even, in that parable, people that you hate. Religiously, racially, whatever. In that parable, it's both. But here, John is limiting this a bit. He's talking about hating and loving your brother. And brother, sister, that kind of, that's churchy talk uh, that we don't really even use anymore in the church uh, unless, you know, you're in a, like a small country church somewhere and you're like, in the stand? I know, but it's not that small in country. So we, we don't use that. But it's churchy talk for other Christians. And, and so he has limited this to Christians. And that is probably because there are issues going on in the church because remember, this is written to Christians, not to the world in general. Okay? So that's the first thing. Second thing, there's this issue of love and hate. And, and we need to explain what these are, because our definitions of love and hate are very different than the Bible's. Because in the Bible, to love, someone, uh, to love someone means to accept and delight in whatever their heart leads them to do and to be. Right? Unless, of course, what their heart leads them to do and to be is mean and unaccepting then we're not supposed to love that. Right? We, love, we love and accept everyone except who's not accepting. To hate someone is to somehow restrict their, individual, uh, their expressive individualism. To hate someone in our culture is to, is to restrict their ability to express whatever's in their heart. That's considered hate. Neither of those are the Bible's definition. Okay? Now, listen close, because this is not, not only is this really important, but because of the cultural difference, because of the fact that when you leave this room, when you go out there, everything out there is going to tell you what I just said. That love is this and hate is this. Everything. And if you think you're immune to that, you're crazy. We need to, help, uh, to kind of get our, handle, our hands around what it means, according to the Bible, to love and to hate. Because if we don't, this passage will not make any sense. Okay? So we need to listen clearly, if we can. So the Bible argues that, ex- that expressive individualism, this idea that the way that I will be fulfilled as a human is to express whatever comes into my heart at any given period, that that doesn't work for human flourishing because our hearts are not reliable guides. 
You may say to yourself, well, it kind of points in a given direction. Yes, it does. But if your compass doesn't point north, it will lead you into a ditch. And the Bible says the heart is, is wicked above all things. Who can know it? Like, it's not, it doesn't work right. We think it does, but it doesn't. This is why even the Apostle Paul can say uh, in one of his letters, as a, as a Christian, as a pastor, as a church planner, as a leader, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean I'm not guilty. I stand before one God, one judge. Right? Our hearts aren't reliable. For instance, someone may say, you know, in my heart, I truly believe that I will be most satisfied if I eat broken glass. My, I will be filled if I just eat broken glass. It is not loving towards them to let them do that. Right? And I say that because I think we can all agree on that, can't we? We can all agree that if you let someone eat broken glass, it's not going to do good things for them. They're going to get shredded. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be awful. Love, according to the Bible, is seeking the person's flourishing, even at cost to yourself. It is seeking another person's flourishing, even if it costs you. Right? So, uh, now, if you've been a Christian a while, you know that the Bible, the New Testament, has three different words for love, right? Right? Some of y'all, come on, nod with me. I know you know. Agape, phileo, and eros, right? And we've all, if you've been in the church a long time, what you've been taught is agape love is self-sacrificing love. That's the word in Greek for self-sacrificing love. No, it's not. It's not. All three of those words mean basically the same thing. The reason why the word agape came to be known as self-sacrificing love is because that is the word that the New Testament consistently uses to describe what Jesus did. Not because it had an already predetermined definition. It didn't. Christians transformed the definition of the word by saying, if you want to see what love is, look at that guy. That's what love is. So our definition of love must be shaped by and, and formed by the life and work of Jesus. That is love. And so if that's love, to hate is seeking your own flourishing above the flourishing of others. Now, when I say this, some of us are thinking, that sounds an awful lot like codependency, Rick. Isn't that codependency? No, it's not. Here's why. Love is seeking someone's flourishing, not necessarily their happiness or their approval. Sometimes, that will mean not letting someone have what they want. If you're a parent, you know this, right? To love a child is not to always give them everything they want. Because when I was six, I was convinced that what I wanted, what would flourish me, was unlimited money and power. Lord, how would that have worked out? Terribly? What I needed was boundaries, you know, freedom within those boundaries, and love and care. Love will not always mean giving some, someone what they want, not letting them do what they want, because love has to be governed by how the Bible says we will flourish. And this means much of what our culture says is love is in fact, according to the Bible, hate. It's hate. That is why, friends, Christianity is so weird to people. 
if, if, you, if, if the only folks you ever hang out with are Christians, if you're a Christian, all you ever hang out with is Christians, you don't get this. Get around some non-Christians. We are strange. We are weird because of this. What they call love, we think is letting people run their own merry way into a ditch. And because we don't think what they think, we're seen as bigots or narrow-minded or backward. It's just true. John says, if you don't love your fellow Christian, if you don't love them, if you're not seeking their flourishing above your own, then you're not in the light at all. With me? All right. Look at verse 11, though, because he also talks about being stuck in darkness. He says, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in the darkness, and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Now, here's what he's getting at. Remember I said a few minutes ago that the Bible claims that all of us are independent of God by nature, right? This is a state that the Bible calls sin. And one of the defining marks of that state is self-deception. And a lot of us know this, right? Self-deception, the idea, I've got this under control, I'm doing fine, God is actually really happy with me because of who I am, I'm awesome. Like, we are self-deceived. Proverbs 14, verse 12 says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. We think we have it right, but we are deceiving ourselves. And that's what John is talking about. John is saying that darkness is a state that we can't even see because we've been blinded to it. Which means that it's a state that we need rescue from. And that, that is the first, the first aspect of that rescue is that we need to realize we're in it in the first place. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. It is very likely that some of us here believe we are Christians and we aren't. Some of that is because we just don't understand what it means to be a Christian. We, we've always thought being a Christian means being American and not being a Buddhist. For others of us, we know exactly what it means. We've got a lot of head knowledge to that end. We know, but we don't actually believe. We think we do. Very assured of it in our hearts. The Bible would call that presumption. Darkness has blinded us, but here's the thing. John is very clear, and so we need to make it very clear, because what I've probably said, there are probably some of us for whom, even in saying that, that raises a bit of panic in us. You probably tend towards anxiety anyway. That raises some panic in us, and, and we're immediately thinking, what do I need to do? We need to be clear on this. The action that John gives us, love, hate, arises from the state that we are in, light, dark. Right? Did you see that? You don't love someone to get into the light... Loving someone is the evidence you are in the light. You don't hate someone to get into the dark. Or if you start hating someone, you're not getting yourself into... It's not getting darker for you. He's saying, if you're hating your brother, you're in the darkness. So we think it's the opposite because of our natural bent away from God. You see, to, to even see... To even see... And this is... Oh, gosh, we don't get it. To even see that you're in the darkness is the grace of God. To even understand... like. I think, I think I'm actually in the darkness. Do you understand? Like, John just said, you can't possibly see that. The darkness has blinded you. If your eyes are open, it's because God has done something. 
God, by his grace, comes and he opens our eyes to show us where we are so that we can then run to Jesus. And so if you're here this morning and you're wondering where you are with Jesus, please do not try to reform your life. Please don't try and, 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 and try and make things better. Pray that God opens your eyes to see his glory, to see your need, and then run to his gracious provision in Jesus. You can't love yourself into the light. Lastly, it comes to a new comfort. All right? Look down at verses 12 to 14. Um, let's be honest. Those were really confusing. Like, who are the fathers? Who are the children? Who are the young men? And why does he only talk to dudes? Right? Like, what, what is this? Why, why is this going on? Um, these verses are confusing. They sound redundant, right? So here's what scholars will tell you. Scholars will tell you that what's going on is that John is actually speaking to the entire church, not to individual groups of people. And he's talking to them in a poetic way about what is true of all of them. So let me point out what is awesome about this very otherwise confusing passage. Okay? These, these few verses. John has just laid out this test. And that test, quite frankly, if you're anything like me, is really intimidating. Because I don't... I... I I said it. I hate polarities, right? What I want to do is I want to mitigate. Maybe you're like me. I want to mitigate. I want to say, well, I mean, no, I'm not necessarily loving, but can I just kind of be neutral? Can I just kind of be neutral towards some of these people? I mean, I don't love them, maybe. I, I get that, but maybe I'm not. I don't, I'm really hating them, right? I struggle at times, a lot of times, to love. But John doesn't allow me to say that I'm neutral. He says, I'm not neutral. He says, I hate them. That's rough. So what am I to do? What are we to do? This could lead us to despair. It could. And if you're a Christian in this room, if it doesn't at least start to move you towards the possibility of that, I don't think you're understanding what he's saying. It could lead us to despair because because of the expectation that I should be perfectly loving now. But to help with that, he gives us those verses. Look down at verses 12 to 14. He lays out a few notions. Your sins are forgiven. You know God. You've overcome the evil one. And you're strong and the word of God abides in you. Okay? All great things, right? All things that would be difficult to believe are true about you because of this test. Right? Have I really overcome the evil one if I still hate people? Have I, have I, um, do I really know God if I'm not Always in the light? Like, how, how does that work out? Those things would be very difficult to believe, except for the grammar of the passage. I know some of you get bugged when I talk about grammar, uh, but that's okay, because it's really important. In the original, and I don't know, it may, hopefully, hopefully you know this, the Bible was not originally written in, Greek, in English, it was written in Greek, okay? At least the New Testament. And, and in, in the original, all of the verbs in this section, right, um, your sins are forgiven, that you've known him, that you've overcome. All of them are, are given in what is in Greek called the perfect tense. Here's why that matters. If you don't remember anything else, here's why it matters. The perfect tense in Greek is about something that happened in the past that has a continuing effect in the present. So when he says, your sins are forgiven, what he means is, they were forgiven in the past. And they still are now. No, you don't love perfectly. Your sins have been forgiven. You've come to know God. 
And you still do. But I don't do things right. Of course you don't do things right. You've come to know God, and you still do. You see why this is awesome? Because, like, I hear John, and I'm like, dude, like, I'm jacked up. How can I be in the light? John says, because your sins have been and continue to be forgiven. Because you have and still know God. Because you have and will overcome the evil one. Immediately our minds go, when we hear that, we go, well, what did I do? And John says, nothing. Jesus did. Jesus did. Don't you see? Christianity is not about you getting your act together. And if you read 1 John as if what he's saying is get your act together, you'll miss it. You'll miss it entirely. It is about something in the past done by Jesus that has a present effect. The glory of the gospel is that it declares to us right now, you are messed up beyond all reckoning, way beyond what you think. Cheer up. It's way worse than you think it is. That we continually need grace continually need Jesus to change us. And the, the, the other side of that glory is that it's been provided. It has been accomplished. But if you're here and you see that you haven't been loving people, if you're here this morning and you go like, I think I see now, I, I haven't been loving people, that's not because of me. Look, I do this every week. I've gotten over myself. I'm not that good. I'm not that good a communicator. I can't help you see. It's not because of me and it isn't because of you. It is because of the Spirit of God. To be in darkness means by definition you are blinded and can't see. But comfort comes for whether you aren't a Christian and are realizing it for the first time or you are and you're realizing like, man, I, I haven't been loving people because I have not been seeking their flourishing above my own. Comfort comes as we return again to Jesus as we ask Him to change us, receive the grace that He provides and see that our place with Him is not determined by what we do, but by what He has done for us. Okay? The last thing that this passage does is it helps us temper our expectations. Here's what I mean by this. In Christian circles, I'm going to lay out another polarity, and I've been saying that I hate these things, and now you just call me on it, okay? In Christian circles, we tend to lean either pessimistic or optimistic. And what I mean by that is this. The optimist believes that now that Jesus has come, I can live sinlessly. And not only me, but all y'all too. Which means if you sin against me, I'm doubly angry at you. Because you didn't have to. Right? The optimist believes that now that Jesus has come, we can live sinlessly. And what this ends up doing is it results in the demand, excuse me, the demand that I never be sinned against. And that demand fails on three counts, okay? First, it doesn't rightly see your own sin. Because what that does, what we, when we're overly optimistic about our ability to become more like Jesus, okay, and in Christian circles we call that sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. When we're overly optimistic about that, we tend to view Christian maturity as having less and less sin in our lives, less and less behavioral patterns that look bad. But Christian maturity isn't so much marked by the absence of sin as it is by the presence of love. You see how that works? 
Christian maturity, according to Scripture, isn't marked so much by the absence of sin, but by the presence of love. So we don't rightly see our own sin. Secondly, it downplays the biblical truth that only Jesus is sinless. And lastly, it doesn't realize that the demand itself to never be sinned against is itself sin. Mm. Because you see, the only one who never deserves anything bad to happen to them is God, and he never demanded that of us. As a matter of fact, he comes in Jesus to bear our sin for us, not demand that we get our act together. God has no such demand. And so what this passage does is it tempers that optimism by saying that the darkness is passing away. It is not passed away. It is passing away. In this life, our sanctification, our growth in Jesus, listen to me, will always be incomplete. It will never be complete. To say that you are living fully dependent on Him, to say that you are living in such a way that you are completely relying on Him, you're not uh, bowing down to any idols, that there's no root of sin in your heart, is to say that you are not ever again sinning. You know that ain't true. Come on, man. It's to say that you are living perfectly, perfectly loving others. Good luck with that. Here's the good news. The gospel's true. You realize how big the work of Jesus is? We don't have to pretend. I hope, I, I hope look, I do my best to try and help everyone in this room know that just because I have three letters in front of my name, R-E-V, does not mean I'm not human. <laughs> like, I mess up constantly. The work of Jesus is enough. It's big enough. Not just for the, the bad things we do, but for, um, as, as my good friend Carlton used to say, the unrighteousness of our righteousness. Because you know what? When we, when we want to hold up our record before God, you know what we're really doing? We're using what my friend Paul, who was not a Christian, who was, one of my, who was my roommate in college, used to, this was his definition of the theory of relativity. I'm short because Rick is tall. Right? Which is not it at all. But it does get to relativism. And that's what we use with God. We go, look God, how righteous I am. Because Peter's not. Look, God, how great I am, because Ken is a schmuck. Right? That's what we do. And God's like, and? I'm the righteous one. If you want to compare yourself to someone, God says, compare yourself to me. Let that judge your righteousness. Not on how well you're doing amongst these yahoos. You're all yahoos. That's why I saved you in the first place. The gospel's true. So it tempers our optimism. But it also tempers our pessimism. And the pessimist is the one who who goes about life with their head hung going, like Eeyore. I can never change. There goes my tail again. Like that's, this this is what we do. Here the passage says, the true light is already shining. Listen. I just said it. Our sanctification, our growth to be more like Jesus in this life will never be complete. But it is real. It is real. If it isn't, frankly, like, if, if your life isn't, as a Christian, if you've been a Christian a while and your life is not 
being conformed to the love of Christ for others, you're not seeing yourself growing in love, then John's tests are a real thing. And we need to ask ourselves really hard questions about them. Love is the result of being in Jesus. So if love is not present, if you are still obsessed with yourself, unable to, unable to give of yourself, then you may be in darkness. You may be. Come to Jesus. The gospel's still true. The light has dawned. You've been removed from darkness, which means that real change is possible. It may not be as quickly as you want. It may come in fits and starts. But Jesus has brought the age to come into our now so that we can grow in love towards others. That we can grow to love them by seeking their physical and emotional and spiritual flourishing, even at cost to ourselves. Because that is what Jesus did. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask, I, I ask for everyone in this room that, Lord, if, if there are folks in this room, and I, I know there are, <laughs> who are in darkness, whose eyes have been blinded by darkness, I pray, O oh God, that you would show us, you would open our eyes to see our blindness even. That we would see our great need for you and run again to Jesus. And for those of us who are in Jesus and find that we have too often Define Christian maturity by the absence of sin instead of the presence of love. Seeing it as primarily something about uh, prohibition, (laughs) abstaining, and less about an active, strong, powerful love. I pray that you would open our eyes to that. We would see that and we would move out. That this church would be known as a church that loves well. Because we are willing to give ourselves for the flourishing of others. For your glory, O God, we ask it. For our good, O Lord, we ask it. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.